0: Hi, I'm Jake Malcolm, host of Think Health. 2SER is in its second week of Supporter Drive, which is where we reach out to you, the wonderful listener of this program, to reach into your pocket and send some money our way to keep this show going for another year. If you'd like to become a supporter, head to 2SER.com forward slash donate, or if you're in the Sydney area, why not give us a call on 9514 9500, where you can make a tax-deductible donation of the amount you choose. And today, we're going to jump back a few months and play you a show from earlier this year. Enjoy.
1: And
2: it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrushed.
3: And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any
4: compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
0: We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think
1: Health
0: on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show... So if you were seen to be skinny
4: and or, or you've lost a lot of weight, then you're more likely to be HIV positive. And if you were the opposite, bigger, beefier, musclier, then you're
0: likely to be safe. Cardiovascular disease and why gay men are more at risk than heterosexual men. And improving the livelihood of youth across the country. Australia's largest youth health conference kicks off. That's today on Think Health. But first, I want you to think of something small. Something as small as a grain of rice.
1: Imagine yourself as a small grain.
0: This is Olga Shimoni. She's from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: But on a scale of a million times smaller than the grain of rice.
0: Try and paint a picture in your head of what something a million times smaller than a grain of rice might look like. Not easy, right? Seeing as you wouldn't be able to see that thing without a microscope.
1: That's a nanoparticle.
0: A nanoparticle? Yes. A nanoparticle is between 1 and 100 nanometers in size. Metrics-wise, that's 10 to the power of 9 minus metre, or one billionth of a metre.
2: The nanoparticles that we're using is like maybe 20 nanometer or something, which is like a thousand times smaller than the tip of human hair.
0: That's Noshina Nasiri. She's from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney.
2: So if it's as small as that size, then yes, you can use it in a variety of fields. That's the point of doing this research.
0: Olga and Noshina are both researchers of how nanotechnology little devices the size of nanoparticles, can be applied in healthcare, and how nanotech can help detect diseases before they spread throughout the body. Nanotechnology is typically used to track biomarkers in human samples, meaning they'll look for traces of disease in our bodily fluids.
1: Blood or urine or from saliva...
0: These nanotech are also made out of different things. Some are carbon-based, some are even made
1: out of gold. Pregnancy test based on gold nanoparticles.
0: Right. So yes. it's, it's, gold, it's a mineral? Yeah. They develop the nanotech in a lab and then insert it into a tube of a blood sample, for example, and wait for a reaction. What type of reaction is that? Is it it a colour one? Is it kind of relayed back to a computer?
1: Well, depends on the nanotechnology you use. Gold nanoparticles can change the colour if they react.
0: Others can be formed by shining a fluorescent light on them. Yes. But what is it about nanotech that responds to the presence of a disease? Why are gold nanoparticles part of a pregnancy test? According to Notion, the most important aspect of all of this is the surface area of a nanoparticle.
2: The most important thing is surface area.
0: Imagine you're holding a Rubik's Cube. It has six sides, different colours, and it's made up of 26 miniature cubes, or cubies as they're called. The surface area is the measurement of all six sides of that Rubik's Cube. Now, imagine the Rubik's Cube is too hard. You're frustrated and you feel like tearing it apart, so you do. You pull it apart and then the one big cube turns into 26 cubes. Now each of those cubes has its own surface area.
2: If you make it smaller and smaller and smaller, you're adding a lot of surfaces.
0: By tearing it apart, you've increased the overall surface area, because now instead of one big cube, you have 26, each with their own surface. 26 cubes by six sides, that's 156 surfaces. Now, why is this important? Back to nanoparticles. Nanoparticles can actually grow in a cubic shape, and what this means is when you add a nanoparticle into a human sample, you have a much larger surface area of nanoparticles that could help detect the presence of something you're looking for, while maintaining the original volume. And this is what happens with the gold nanoparticles in a pregnancy test.
1: The gold is decorated with a marker or pointer that interacts with a hormone that's expressed when you're pregnant. And when they interact together, they stick to this piece of paper together. And then you see lots of lots of nanoparticles at the same time sticking to the specific point, and you see the signal of that.
0: And that's how you find out, hey,
1: maybe you're pregnant.
0: So a larger surface area that comes with nanoparticles makes it much more likely for you to be able to detect something because you can coat a marker across a bigger surface area. Go to the work Olga is doing. She's using disease-coded markers in nanoparticles to detect the presence of cancer cells in the body, signs of gastroenterological disorders, which is to do with your gut and digestion. She's even working on disorders like Alzheimer's, using NMR scans to detect signals before the onset becomes visible. The opportunities with nanoparticles seem endless. But the one thing that excites Notion, in particular about all of this, is breath analysis.
2: One advantage for breath is that breath is the first one.
0: The biomarkers or presence of a disease have a very high vapour pressure meaning they're always looking for an escape route.
2: And they want to come out of your body. They definitely find a way to come out of your body because of that high high vapour pressure.
0: And where else would be better for a continual stream of human samples to track disease markers?
2: Sampling of breath is not a problem because you always breathe.
0: (sighs) But the tricky part? Collecting a breath sample. Unlike taking a urine or blood sample, running around with a paper bag and holding it up to someone's mouth to capture their breath doesn't seem like the easiest option. Although Notion says some researchers are actually giving that a go.
2: There are some bags designed for this sort of research, and they ask uh, patients to also breathe into the bag, and then they like test that bag later, yeah.
0: But for Notion, to make things easier, She's simulating breath. What does it sound like in the lab?
2: Uh, <laughs> does it
0: sound like a whole bunch of like... <gasps>
2: uh, you, you can control it, actually. There are lots of uh, like machines that uh, you have a chamber, as I said, and then you have all of these cylinders, which are compounds coming from human breath, and then you mix them in the chamber, and then you have a pump. You can very accurately simulate breathing of human breath.
0: Notion's simulated breathing analysis and Olga's work in disease detection are just the beginning of what nanoparticles can do for medical research. The next step? Developing nanomedicines that go inside or can be injected into the body, as opposed to testing taken samples. Olga again.
1: This is especially true for cancer treatment. If you get cancer, you go through the terrible chemotherapy where... Toxicity of this cancer chemotherapy, side effects like hair loss, uh, nausea, but if we'll be using something that release only weight needed, that will just revolutionize all the treatment.
0: Olga Shimoni, senior lecturer in the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology Sydney, ending that story. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures.
4: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
0: Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death among men in Australia, with gay men at a higher level of risk than heterosexual men. But why is this? Bernard Saliba is from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and recently conducted a research project addressing what factors contribute to this disparity.
4: The first factor was actually discrimination in mental health, something called minority stress, which is basically just elevated levels of stress that are experienced by anyone who, is, who belongs to a stigmatised group. In Australia, we see that with things like the current laws around same-sex marriage and also just reluctance, I guess, to visit mainstream health
0: services because they've experienced discrimination. I was even reading, it was, it came down to what I found interesting was lifestyle or like the lifestyle of gay men to, I guess, engaging in perhaps drinking, smoking or illicit drug use, which contributed to poor cardiovascular health.
4: Yeah, well, exactly. So, I mean, that was, and I had to be careful with that not to reinforce any, or not to implicitly reinforce any stereotypes as well, because the whole point of this research is also to highlight, you know, there are these stereotypes and it's important not to discriminate when it comes to that. But that, that's the reality, is that because of what I found in terms of mental health problems and, and social isolation, a lot of people, and doesn't have to just be gay men, but anyone who does feel slightly marginalized or, or discriminated against, theres studies to show that they're likely to engage in risky behaviors. And risky behaviors could be things like smoking, which is to alleviate social stress, more likely for gay men to engage in tobacco use than non-gay men. It's the same for alcohol as well. And the third one is the use of uh, illicit drugs and in particular meth. So gay men are four times more likely to uh, use meth which is known to have long-term cardiovascular risks including high blood pressure, stroke and of course injecting the drug. can lead to Cardiovascular complications. I guess that also leads me to the the third point or the third factor, and actually an interesting one. And it's not all gay men, of course, but it's when you are engaging in risky behaviour, especially say being on an illicit drug, you're likely to engage in risky sex. Gay men make up seventy five percent of the Australians who are infected with HIV. It's not so much the um, the act of, of course, it's not the act of. Um, engaging in unsafe sex, but it's being on antiretroviral regimes. So those drugs actually, um, there are some studies to suggest that there's an association between antiretrovirals and higher cholesterol or increase in cholesterol in the blood. And what are those anti? Are they things like a Truvada base? Truvada drug, yes. Yeah. And also, there's the fact that there's an interaction between taking meth. And the antiretroviral drugs, and that also has an increased risk or causes an increased risk for gay men. And then the fourth one is actually not really related to all gay men, and it's I thought it was a a different one, so it doesn't quite fit in with the with the first three. But it does relate, and I'll explain how obesity is not really a problem for gay men. They're generally more more likely to be uh, fitter than heterosexual men, and there are studies to show that. However, there is one subgroup you could say of gay men who are known as the bears or the gay yeah. bears which is like big beefy, which is like stocky, big hairy guys it, exactly i mean hairy falls into it but <laughs> they don't i don't think being hairy will, will give you a elevated risk of cardiovascular disease
0: <laughs> i hope not <laughs> um do you know how bears started um, I don't know how the movements... Well, it's it's not necessarily a movement. It's like a subcultural movement.
4: It's a sub... Yeah, it's a subgroup, I guess, of the gay community. And they...
0: I don't know exactly
4: why the name Bears came about. But I know that in the 1980s, when HIV was becoming a big thing and it was you know known as the gay disease, um, a lot of gay men started losing weight unintentionally, rapidly as well. So if you were seen to be skinny and or or you've lost a lot of weight then you're more likely to be infected or more likely to be pos or positive or hiv positive and if you were the opposite so if you were bigger beefier musclier then you're likely to be safe or uninfected so Mm. you became more likely to be desired as a sexual partner
0: wow i didn't know that
4: and so yeah that was a a big thing in the in the 80s, and it, of course, you still see bears these days. And there's bear bars, and there's you know the subculture is still there, and it's it's quite big as well. But of course, higher BMIs, generally lower self-esteems because of physical appearance, lead to what my first point was of yeah. you know you've got stress and mental
0: health problems and intercommunal so, sort of marginalisation given well, I guess of course yeah physique and that can be an additional stress. For people as well. I, I, it's interesting that you raise that up as well. And I guess to go to your purpose of conducting this research and where you see it going, one of the things to come from this is interventions to tackle increased cardiovascular risk for gay men. In what form might you envision those interventions to come?
4: Well, because I do come from a health background, I think it's important to train on cultural diversity, and being culturally sensitive when you are a health professional. But I don't think there's enough out there for people who are reluctant to visit these mainstream services because of previous experiences or past experiences where they've experienced some form of discrimination. I think personalized risk reduction strategies, especially for people who identify as bears or and who might not want to lose weight maybe because they feel like they... Um, more successful as, as as lovers or partners that way. But of course, national health strategies as well. So more education, I guess. Also targeting the community itself. So you see on gay dating apps like Grindr and Scruff, you've, you're always getting um, advertisements about HIV testing and STI testing, but you never see anything that targets your mental health or if you're feeling okay or cardiovascular risk. To have people like the Heart Foundation or to get some sort of initiative from these organisations to get involved with gay activist groups and organisations, just to pay attention to the fact that there are people who might not tell you that they're struggling with an addiction or they might not tell you that they are smoking or drinking more than
0: they should. Bernard Saliba, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. They're the doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers and tradespeople of the next generation. But the 14- to 24-year-old population is one of the most under when it comes to healthcare in Australia. The Access 3 study, headed by Melissa Kang from the University of Technology, Sydney, is looking at five subgroups of youth in Australia, ranging from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth to gender and sexuality-diverse youth. And the study is looking at where this health care provision for youth is falling short. One of the biggest changes Melissa has noticed in her 25 years working in this space is the growing number of youth experiencing mental health problems. I spoke with Melissa ahead of the National Youth Health Conference being held this week.
3: What we've seen an exponential rising when we look at the health issues that young people face are definitely around mental health. Higher rates of depression and anxiety particularly The responses to that by the health system have also been good. Uh, We now have, for example, GPs who are really well-trained in how to diagnose or assess mental health disorders in young people, a better idea of the evidence of what works with treatment of those conditions. What I think we don't do so well is bring services together well so that young people don't feel like they have to keep shuffling from one place to another. So, for example, we have the National Youth Mental Health Initiative Headspace, which has opened up dozens and dozens, hundreds of services for young people, including in rural areas where it might have been harder in the past to get help. But there are some barriers to that because you can only get a certain number of sessions, for example, with a psychologist under the Medicare plans. And that might be fine for a lot of young people, but sometimes they need more than that or sometimes they go back to a different GP And perhaps the services don't communicate well enough with each other to provide a kind of integrated service.
0: Why do you think you've seen a rise in mental health issues for youth over the 25-year period? Why do you think that's changed?
3: I think there's a lot of people asking those questions. I think it's a worldwide phenomenon. It's global. So the World Health Organization is calling, you know, depression, for example, the new epidemic, or it's not so new anymore. Here in Australia. We're recognising it more. We're encouraging young people to talk more about their feelings and emotions. Not everyone who feels sad has depression. So sometimes there's a little bit of over but more than that, there's a lot of under-recognition and there's still some stigma attached to it. The rise in anxiety, which is actually more prevalent than depression, is something that I think has something to do with just modern society These are just my ideas. There's no evidence behind this necessarily, although other people are kind of talking about the fact that there's just a lot of pressure now. There's a lot of pressure to succeed academically, to work, to keep up all the time. Young people especially are connected all the time, 24-7, whether that's doing something to kind of just stress levels, you know, hormones in the body, the alertness, the, the sort of constant stimulation from being online, While that has a lot of benefits socially and convenience-wise for a lot of things, it perhaps is um, adding to the need to always be on the ball and out there. Things like to the cost of living, you know, the cost of finding accommodation, things like that, I think, just add to a lot of stress.
0: In what form do you see youth calling for help?
3: That's something that we've been really interested in exploring in the what we call the Access 3 study. So just to give you the context, this is New South Wales health-funded research. And going back now almost 20 years, in fact, um, New South Wales health-funded what was called Access 1 and then Access 2. And it was a big, broad-brush look at what are the barriers to healthcare for young people. So it was the first time the state had done anything like this. What's happened since then, of course, is now our generation of young people are digital natives and we have no idea how that's impacted on the way they look for information and receive it but also how they access services. Does it actually um, facilitate access or does it create barriers? But the particular focus of Access 3, unlike the earlier studies, is that we are focusing a lot on five different subgroups of young people that we are calling marginalised for different reasons. So they are Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islanders, young people of refugee or vulnerable migrant backgrounds, young people who are homeless or risk of homelessness, sexuality and or gender diverse young people, and also young people living in rural and remote parts of New South Wales. The most important outcome of this research has been to inform the new youth health policy, which will be available later this year. And it's going to, again, have a real emphasis on marginalised or vulnerable groups of young people. But most importantly, it's taught us (laughs) as health service providers and policy makers and researchers what some of the issues are that we think really need to be addressed.
0: Is there kind of summation of some of those issues, like as to why you're looking at those subgroups in particular?
3: We chose those subgroups because they're quite visible to us who work with young people. We're really aware that they're groups that we have worked with that we're really concerned about and whose health we feel hasn't been adequately addressed by policy enough. These groups of young people do have more difficulty being seen or heard or accessing help for various reasons.
0: To insert e health and m health to being electronic and mobile yes. health. That is something that I think more recently has been relayed to the older population in Australia. When it comes to the context of youth and looking at the way E and M health can kind of make an imprint there, in what way do you see that?
3: Well, what we've found so far in our sort of preliminary look at the data is that every young person uses mobile technology to get information. Nearly 100% just of our sample would use the internet a lot, and would certainly go there first to find out what was wrong with them if they had symptoms or had a worry or heard about something. What we were then interested in is, okay, what do you do next? Do you then diagnose yourself and not go to the to seek help, or does it make you more likely to go and seek help? What happens next? And what we what we have been finding so far is that the great majority of young people will decided they prefer to see a real person if they feel that their symptoms or their concerns are strong enough to lead them to think they, yeah, there's something wrong. Most of them will actually then turn to a parent or a carer or someone uh, that they know. So word of mouth, in fact, rather than looking it up online.
0: Do you see that there's an interesting paradox to that because there is such a a ridiculous amount of information online too. Yep. Could it also add to the anxiety amongst a youth population? They pop on their phone, yep. they read something yep. about a condition they yep. may or may not have yep. and they're like, oh no.
3: Yeah. I think we certainly saw some examples of that where yeah, the more they looked the worse it become <laughs> and they just almost seized up, you know, like this is just too this is too stressful, this is too hard. There's a kind of real diversity of, of reactions, I think. But the majority said, yep, we're not idiots. Um, we can tell when something might be a bit of rubbish and, and these are the kinds of sites that we trust. But they had lots of advice for those kinds of government-based websites about how hard they are to navigate and how unyouth friendly they are. So I think we can do a lot more in that space to make things easier for young people.
0: The AAAH conference, Youth Conference is this week. Yep. Why do you think that a conference like this is important today? still in 2017?
3: (laughs) Look, I think that young people are a group, on the one hand, are full of vitality and energy and physically quite healthy. But actually, if you look over the last several decades and you look at how much medical technology especially has extended the lifespan has improved the survival of little babies and children, has improved the management of chronic diseases in older people, when you look across the whole age range in the population, it is young people, it is that 12 to 24 age group whose health really hasn't improved in the same way. Some things have improved, but we're seeing, as, as I said earlier, you know, much higher rates of mental health disorders. Sexual and reproductive health, is something that there is absolutely lots of very available and, and safe and effective technology out there to ensure that sexual and reproductive health is absolutely optimal in young people, but we know that it isn't when we look at the data. So we're really keen to see that improve.
0: Melissa Kang, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Also head to 2SER.com to find out more. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.